Smod Pods continue to pack live shows in 2015. Don't miss Kevin Ralph for Hollywood Babylon at the Hollywood Improv every Friday. Kevin Andy makes minds mighty with edumacation at the Ice House in Pasadena on January 31st. Looking ahead to February, Jason Muse hits Wizard World Madison Comic Con February 6th through 8th. Ice House in Pasadena hosts Jay and Silent Bob Get Old on the 28th. Kev goes solo at the Tempe Improv on March 14th, followed with Jay and Bob Get Old. Why Bry heads to Florida in April. Fort Lauderdale Improv on April 17th, Palm Beach Improv on the 18th, and Orlando Improv on the 19th. Kev does an evening with in Fort Lauderdale as well on the 17th, and then West Palm Beach on the 18th. Cough up a little cash to see your favorite purveyors of free funny on Sir as they hit the road, coming soon to a con or comedy club near you. Tickets for these and all Smodco shows are at csmod.com. Geek News Reviews Commentary Not just another podcast On the Ordinary the Big Ball Broadcast Insert random joke here Now here comes your host Kyle A. Barrett Of the World Steve Welcome to the Big Ball Broadcast, Episode 6. We talk all things geeky here on the show. My name is Kyle Abair. I'm a voice actor for anime and video games and all sorts of stuff, and I'm here on the West Coast. And your co-host on the East Coast, Otherworld Steve. I am a musician and amateur historian. Earlier in the day before we did uh, the recording of this show, I saw a very interesting article about uh, the perils of an all-digital movie future, uh, discussing film preservation on celluloid versus hard drives, you know, digital files. We've we've seen what's happened as uh theaters have migrated from film projectors to uh, uh a, a huge percentage of uh, expensive upgrades and everything to go digital. Your, your average cost of a film print's about 1500 bucks. Uh a digital copy is only 150. So studios and replication houses and all that are saving a lot of money. You know, film reels are these huge, big platters that that look bigger than the biggest pizza you can order. Uh, they're bulky, and of course, they cost a lot to ship. But um, ultimately, you're saving time and money and size and and convenience. Uh, but um, you know, we we uh, had someone reply when I when I shared this article or reshared this article on Facebook. A friend of mine named Kyle Vogt. Um, who is a data integrity and archive person at a major corporation that will remain nameless. Uh, we invited Kyle to the show here tonight. So first of all, Kyle, hello, sir. Hi, thanks for having me. And what people may also not know is that uh, you're also an on-screen actor. You're in yep. the uh, very infamous The Room from Tommy Wiseau. Yes. And uh, what, what current projects are you pimping nowadays? Nowadays, I'm working on some uh, minor independent films, and we've got a short film coming out from some of The Room actors themselves making fun of what would it be like trying to be an actor after being in The Room. When when I posted this article, you replied within a few minutes, you know, talking about the the whole... Well, I'll, I'll let you just chime in here. So, so the article is saying that basically film ends up being not this brittle, thin, horrible thing that, that's going to go away as opposed to digital, uh, which a lot of, you know, of course, the current generation is and for, for generations to come. But, uh, you know, the problem becomes storage. You know, hard drives break down. Uh, the cloud and all that's not 100% safe. You know, it's hackable, obviously. Things break down. There's program upgrades, software upgrades. Uh, but you deal with this directly on a day-to-day basis with, with, your, with your day job. So maybe you can chime in on, on your thoughts about film preservation versus uh, digital files. I glanced over the article and I saw he made a couple of assumptions that the film was being perfectly stored so that it would last as long as possible and was assuming that the digital uh, copies of the files were not being perfectly stored 
and thus gave them the shortest life they could. With that in mind, generally if you do best practice, you would have a single copy of film that itself would last longer than a digital copy just due to magnetic uh, degradation of the, me the media itself. So keeping that in mind, it's much easier to make a copy of a digital file without any errors and cheaper. So what we tend to do is we have multiple simultaneous copies of these files available at different geographical locations just in case there's a physical disaster like an earthquake or a fire, like you remember what happened at Universal a couple of years back. They lost a huge chunk of their film archive because it caught on fire. Yeah. In fact, uh, the current position I have was encouraged by the senior VPs to get a lot more support as we were just ramping up as that fire occurred. So they saw the, the need to get those digital backups in place and uh, make sure that their intellectual property was safe in other forms. Now, when we do it, we keep our copies in multiple locations, and we even keep it on different kinds of media. You have the typical hard drive storage, which is in an enterprise-level environment, actually a bunch of RAIDs. So it's not a single drive with a single point of failure. It's across multiple drives with multiple copies that have PARs, which can rebuild files if they accidentally get broken. And we have checks that go through to make sure that the files that have any data drift are corrected. But we also keep copies in an off-site storage that's not online. So it's on physical tapes, which are then stored in a temperature-controlled environment, much like the article said you should do with film. We have multiple copies that are refreshed to make sure that they're always good. They're checked regularly to make sure they're always good. And we have physical copies just in case. Okay, so uh, have you ever stumbled across something where you notice, oh, there's some digital file corruption and all that, and it's like, okay, it's not the end of the world because we made, for example, 25 extra copies of this in our multiple locations? Yep, it happens, especially if you're dealing with something and there's a critical failure, like um, if, for instance, something gets shorted out and you have to go, oh, well, this copy's no longer available, so we'll just pull from this other location, which, since it's online... It took about two milliseconds to convert to the other location and pull the file from the other source. Okay, yeah, I guess you're you're linked on a, on a network, so you know even though you're pulling the, these really really huge uncompressed files, how long would you say does it take to transfer a whole movie, for example? Well, it kind of depends on which version. Um, I mean, you've got your lossless 4K edits, and then you've got the compressed versions that are used for DVDs, and even smaller versions for uh, broadcasts. But we can get, because of the size of the, the network pipe we have, we can get a full feature length moved in about two hours. Are you talking specifically about films that original originate in that digital format, or do you also do conversion from film to digital? We directly don't do conversion, but there are post houses that we hire to do conversion of older mediums to digital, um, in addition to the ones that are shot digitally uh, native. So we have both some very old, old intellectual property as well as some new ones. In fact, some of our old media was found to be stored in a not-so-pristine case and was starting to decay and had to go through a digital recovery in order to return it back to pristine condition and then stored 
since the physical celluloid had actually started to become discolored and corrupted. Yeah, I've I've been meaning to check out this uh, this documentary on Netflix, and I forgot the name of it, of course. But um, uh, it, it's it's talking about how the different directors are, you know, purely into film or purely yeah. into digital. You know, Tarantino is all celluloid and hates yeah. digital, and Robert Rodriguez is all digital, and Nolan. Yeah, Nolan is, of course, he. He helped bring back, and I'm sure a lot of theaters go, what, Interstellar in 35 and 70 millimeter? What, what is this? What, what is this strange beast? And I guess maybe some, some theaters are caught off guard by that sort of thing, right? Yeah, definitely. They're not necessarily set up to have multiple different projectors. They've got whichever one was the most common standard that they could afford. So there's no real um, library of projectors they can just pull out to show a film that's only on 70 millimeter celluloid as opposed to a 70 millimeter digital. Now, um, there is some difference when you view it if you know what to look for, much like the audio files will say there's a difference between an MP3 file and a lossless WAV file and something that's coming off of vinyl, which I remember somebody on this show really liking vinyl. <laughs> Guilty as charged, yeah. So yeah, um, you can hear the difference when you have different speaker sets. Something that I found out when I was working at Warner Music and was doing this was the sound that you hear is something that you're taught to listen for. And the majority of people don't have the time or the money to afford the necessary tools to notice the subtle differences between a lot of the digital copies and the originals. You've probably seen the memes where they say, okay, $100,000 to record in this studio... Uh, to make you know uh, a, a CD or a vinyl or whatever that's going to just be compressed and listened to on a, on a smartphone through ten dollar earbuds. Yeah, <laughs> but those the quality of those ten dollar earbuds compared to back when that studio was built probably are not that far from what they were originally wanting to listen to. I mean, compare the like sixties and seventies radio broadcasts coming over those radio speakers. And the recordings were probably about the same. What do you think uh, this sparked this whole revolution in, in creating your job position as essentially data integrity and archive? Did people just notice that as as things started going digital? It's like, hey, we we need to we need to back this up because the the the, the famous story with Pixar is you know when they go to issue Toy Story back on DVD, not even Blu-ray, but DVD. Right after a couple of years after the theatrical release, they uh, had a bunch of original data files corrupted, and they used a film print for the DVD master, and then that someone almost deleted all the Toy Story two files. Yes, yeah. but you also have to remember what year that was. Yeah, that was the early nineties. Right, we've come quite a ways in data integrity just in like your standard hard drive self-checking for bit rot itself, much less taking extreme measures for multiple uh, drive raids and multiple location storage. So because of things like that and because of even older things, like back when they did punch cards, what happens when you lost a punch card? Like, oh, man, my program doesn't work anymore. The data that I got out of it doesn't, isn't useful. They started thinking about things like hard drives and cassette tapes and reel-to-reels to store stuff in that was faster and easier. And that currently leads up to what we do now, which is make as many copies as you can and then have tools to check the integrity of the copy. Yeah, so you got multiple things, multiple formats. If one goes bad, you just make another one, right? Is there And are you making a, a copy of a copy or a digital source, or do you actually use masters? Depends. If we're making a copy of like uh, a lower-res version, we just reduplicate the the low res version. We don't go back to the master and regenerate a uh, like an H.264 version from a, a 4K 
Okay, source. We just copy another H.264 version. Yeah, okay. And uh, how often are there like program and software updates and upgrades? And, and, and how, how much does that affect what you do? Does it, does it just mean you have to just restart your re-archive stuff just because you got a new version of the whatever, you know, the editing software or whatever? No, because the, the data storage standards are pretty much set by the international community, just like uh, MP, MP4s. The MPEG file set is this is the standard. This is how you do it. Now there's going to be a new version coming out for video files that will become a sta- an international standard fairly soon. Um, they're still going through the 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 requests for comments, the RFCs, in order to determine the the final details. But it's become fairly standard, so that a lot of the problems that have been happening with multiple file formats would be allayed. But as a result. We don't need to upgrade the files themselves when software gets changed, just like you don't have to upgrade your cassette player every time you get a, your cassettes when you get a new cassette player or a record if you get a new record player. So as long as it can actually read the file format, it doesn't matter how new the program actually is. Well, cool. Now I understand that a little bit better. It, it's, it sounds like a really, really cool job. Is it stressful at all, or are you, are you just like, eh, it's nothing, it's easy? <laughs> Sometimes it's stressful when someone's like, oh, my God, we didn't get this done in time, and we've got to get this to air soon. You need to pull it off this other source from somewhere else fairly quickly. So you're, you're dealing with, uh, with broadcast sources as well as home video and streaming? or The streaming is mostly pulled off of the, the broad and cable cast right now. But um, we also work with the guys who put up stuff on the, the pay streaming sites. But then we also deal with the, the DVD presses and um, the final edits before something that's never been on a, on a uh, physical media that's going to get cable cast or broadcast uh, before it goes to final air. All right. Well, Kyle, thanks for, for taking the time to, to chill with us tonight. Kyle Vogt. i got to say that right. <laughs> V-O-G-T. How'd you put it again? Data Integrity and Archive. It sounds cooler than, it's, than it actually is. We appreciate you taking the time to uh, to chat with us tonight, man. Thanks for having me, Kyle. Thanks, Steve. Thank you, Kyle. Appreciate it. Sure. Talk All to you guys right. later. Peace out. That's pretty wild. I never thought that we'd actually get to talk to someone that does this for a living. It's so fucking cool. I mean, I love history. I, I make you know no jokes about that. And to be able to pervert, preserve something and, and maintain that quality to me is just incredible. One of my, my side things that I participate in um, I've recently come into contact with a bunch of documents handwritten from the uh, mid-1800s through the late-1800s, and my job is to preserve those climate control, to make digital uh, duplications of those original documents so they don't further deteriorate. So what, what Kyle's doing is on a, a much larger scale with much more expensive properties. And it, it's just so cool to talk to the people who are involved in these activities behind the scenes that probably a lot of people don't think about in their normal day to day. And people just take that for, take it for granted. You know, we just pull out our smartphones and we stare at them all day and all night. And as long as it's working, we're fine. But then our world comes apart as soon as your battery runs out or it, uh, your the site that you're trying to watch a video on doesn't buffer quick enough. And, but the ads do, of course, the content doesn't, which I've never understood. How come a commercial can play instantly, but the content has to buffer because the ads take priority. <sighs> Well, yeah, that's true. Maybe one day they'll take priority here. We'll actually make money. <laughs> I love watching a trailer before a trailer on YouTube. Isn't that great? Teaser trailers to the teaser trailer. 
it's awesome. It, it's it's just goes to show what a capitalist market we live in. <laughs> you get like a, a vine, so you get literally a six second montage of a full on trailer. I remember they did that for X Men: Days of Future Past. I uh, reached out to you guys on Twitter at BB Broadcast and looking for feedback. Like, what can we talk about tonight? And uh, Mike the Birdman Dodd said, sexual appeal of MILFs and also the Mama June sex tape and how it relates to the Klingon word for pain, which is oi. That's the Jewish word for pain. <laughs> I know, that's the Jewish word for pain. But it got it got listed as a Klingon word, too. I don't know. I guess at some point when you're making up a new language, you kind of run out of new words. What's the word for the revenge, which is the dish best served cold? You know, it's heard best in its original Klingon, after all. Honestly, not that big a Star Trek fan. <laughs> ah, fair enough, fair enough. Then, then we won't talk about the possible directors for Star Trek III. Uh, I was saying before we started uh, recording this fine episode, Vivid is just batshit insane. And part of me really applauds that, that... That's ballsy. I mean, yeah, we're talking about the sex industry, and I don't know if ballsy is appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> but um, to to throw money out there and see what will stick, you know, they, they went after Octomom for a while, and, and finally she caved. I, I guess the money was right. So now they're talking about, I, I guess it's the same deal, a million dollars to start to uh, to produce a sex film. I mean, there's an audience for everything out there. I'm sure someone wants to see it, at least from a train wreck perspective, but I can't say I can. I even have any interest in a train wreck perspective. I'm just, no. Well, we talk about, you know, things that go on behind the scenes that people don't normally think about in their day-to-day, but, you know, there are people that do research and they find out what's trending in the world of porn, and apparently Vivid spokespeople have said, well, big, luscious women are becoming more and more in vogue in, in pornography sites, so... It might be worth that million dollars to try to cash in on this bigger person. What's going to happen to all the porn, Steve? You know, <laughs> the tapes will degrade. We have to preserve them for future generations. We need to start up a company, an archive. We need to preserve all this porn. Even the digital formats at some point may become lost. Or No, I don't think so. <laughs> the internet is for porn. I think you can probably find some of the, the oldest porn in the world online somewhere. That's right. And and there'll be someone out there. I bet Vivid has their own data integrity and archive specialist. You know, they just might. <laughs> if they can throw around money to make the films, they probably have a pretty good support base. <laughs> like 300 years from now, it's like, they remember Tila Tequila? Like, no, trying to forget. <laughs> oh, my God. Anal squirting. What? Okay, anyway. Yeah, it's time to move on to something else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, move on, move on. Please, take us somewhere. I thought this was pretty interesting. We've been talking a lot since uh, we started up this podcast about how television, scheduled television, isn't really the norm anymore. People don't rush home to catch the latest episode of the latest show as it airs on, on a broadcast network. We're living more in this digital age. But if you still want to tune in at that same time and watch that same show, you don't necessarily have to be tethered to your television anymore if you enjoy the fine programming at NBC and if you can prove you're a, a, an actual cable subscriber. And I kind of thought that was the dick move part of that. But if you can prove to NBC that they that you are a cable uh, subscriber, and I'm not sure quite how you do that yet. This is an article um, on Gizmodo through Wall Street Journal. So go ahead and do your research, kiddies. Um, if you do that, then you can watch these NBC shows <clears throat> as they're airing 
live or in simulcast on TV on your smartphone, your tablet, your laptop, et cetera, et cetera. Not like the CBS streaming plan where, from what I understand, you don't have to be a cable subscriber, but it's going to cost you some coin. Yeah, I know that when I downloaded various cable channel apps, I thought, oh, this is great. And then it says, you know, you got to enter your your cable provider. You got to enter your your email address that you registered through your cable provider, and it just stops you dead in your track. So it's like it doesn't matter that Apple TV, PS4, Xbox One, you know, has all these apps for all your favorite networks. It's like, well, what good does it do to have those? If you have to already have a cable subscription, and if you already have a cable subscription, why are you going to go to the apps unless it's just for the on-demand aspect of it? But now even cable has on-demand. Right. And uh, people still can record those shows digitally if you're a cable subscriber. I, I keep joking about TiVo, but there's a – I don't even remember what it's called, but you, you can record those shows. Oh, so. DVR. Yeah. DVR. There you go. So I, I don't see the point of the app – if you aren't a cable subscriber, except, you know, in the case with CBS right now where you don't have to be a cable subscriber, but at the same time, it's, it's going to cost you some coin. I don't know why cable is an a la carte at this point. I don't know if it's the death throes of the industry just trying to hold on to whatever's left. But this integration into other media and, and having other options to purchase the, the availability of that. It's so behind the curve. I'm I'm having a hard time trying to understand why it's so far behind. Did you hear that PlayStation is uh, in beta for for some sort of cable type package with with multiple networks and all that? And of course, you watch it through the through the console, and it looks like it's kind of akin to the gaming cloud thing that they've developed. Um, and you know, I'm assuming it's going to be a, you know, a tiered pricing thing a la cable TV. It's what Sony and Microsoft have both promised us from the beginning that your console would be the centerpiece of, of your home media entertainment. And as I just said, uh, that really hasn't come to fruition yet. I'm hoping that it does because I, I, I would prefer that. I would prefer to have uh, my, my PlayStation where you have Hulu and YouTube and, Amazon, uh, we're, we're prime customers here. So you get a bunch of uh, prime shows available for free as a, a prime member. I would prefer to, to do everything through my uh, my home console, through my PlayStation, as opposed to having to do it in concert with cable. I just open. I'm going to keep my fingers crossed. Yeah, I mean, I get the whole thing about it's pillaging their own business model. Um I understand where they're coming from, but you know, it's almost like the market is, is leading the charge. You know, it's like people are dropping their, they're, they're cutting the cord for, for cable at, uh, you know, it seems like exponential growth every year. People are just, you know, like, I don't need it. I got, I need Netflix and Hulu and I'm good. And even then a lot of people don't even necessarily do that. They just borrow their passwords from their friends or family members and log in that way. And I like how you use the word borrow. <laughs> borrow, quote unquote, air quotes. Yeah. You can do that. I don't know. I mean, are you a Hulu and Netflix subscriber? I'm not. I will watch some shows that are available for free through Hulu. Um, because I have cable, I, I really haven't had the incentive to subscribe to these other uh, vendors. I'll purchase one-offs on Amazon from time to time, uh, particularly some documentaries, if I find them pretty interesting. But because I have cable and I have, you know, 
900 channels available to me, I, I don't quite have that incentive to bundle everything yet. Yeah, 900 channels and, and, and nothing's on. Nothing. Yeah, nothing's on. Fucking nothing. Um, <laughs> but my big question is, and I'm sure the stats are out there. No, I'm not going to look them up. But are, are people really dropping cable at that rate? Because it, it seems it's got to be, you know, perhaps still kind of lucrative for the cable companies to keep doing what they're doing. Uh, I read an article last week where they were talking about uh, things that, that get really bad raps that really shouldn't. And one example they used was Nickelback. Everybody says they hate Nickelback. They're, they're one of the most hated rock bands that I could probably ever remember. But at the same time, I believe they have six platinum albums to their credit. So is it that people are just embarrassed and don't want to admit they secretly like Nickelback? Because they're doing something right, even though every all the critics are saying they're doing something wrong. Dude, that happened the same when Thriller was out and Michael Jackson had number one album. It's like no one would fess up. It's like, no, no I would never listen to that crap. And it's like, well, then why is it number one? I don't get it. <laughs> what, what I don't get, another thing I really don't get, I, I can't wrap my, my mind around this, and maybe you can help out, is this, uh, what's it called here now? These Cards Against Humanity. I kind of know a little bit about what it's about, just what I've seen on social media, Facebook, Twitter. But <laughs> this past Black Friday, they sold, I, I guess what they're considering uh, promotional sets, and they were selling them for $6 a box. They sold out of their 30,000 boxes of this uh, promotional set. And in reality, it, it was a box of shit. It was literally bullshit. It was packed, <laughs> packaged bullshit, actual bull excrement in these boxes. And there's some unboxing videos on YouTube that are absolutely fucking hilarious. People breaking apart these uh, clumps of shit looking to see if there's a card, some special bonus hidden inside. And no, at the end of the day, people spent $6 on bullshit. <laughs> Genius, right? I don't get the world we live in today where people are going to spend $6 for bullshit. Now, what's even scarier, not the fact that, that they sold out of their 30,000 sets, which through my math equates to $180,000 for the company, but people are reselling these things on eBay. That is just fucked. <laughs> it's I I know you say you haven't really played it. If you get a chance to play it, it is it is fun. It is all sorts of wrong. So if you have family members that uh, are super conservative, it's probably not a great idea to play that with them. Un unless maybe they'll come out of their element. I was listening to like Chris Hardwick's Nerdist podcast. He had Will Wheaton on, and it's like I had my mom on, and we played Cards Against Humanity, and. You know, normally she doesn't say a, a, a bad word, but then, oh yeah, you know, f bomb this and reading reading the reading the card and laughing and all that. It's almost like, oh, I get to be dirty because this card says I can. You know, it's truth serum in a box. I'll buy that for a dollar. Well, I, if people will buy shit for six dollars, and you can buy that for a dollar. <laughs> can you imagine the smell at the post office? It's like. Why? If someone's mailing crap, they got to be. Well, I, I don't think it's actually uh, – this is the new low for the podcast. I don't think it's it's that consistency of, like, human excrement. It's uh, it, it's more of a dry consistency. I, I think uh, if you've ever encountered uh, cow patties, it, it's more uh, fibrous. There's a lot of grass and stuff. <laughs> uh, oh, bonus. I wonder if that's in there. So it's it's not, you know – 
as offensive as, as one may think. A fresh steaming turd. Right. It's like a freeze-dried turd. <laughs> Someone had to freeze-dry it. God. I, oh. I mean, you know, I where I live in New England, I, I mean, I drive by a, a dairy every day when I go to work, and there's this tremendous mound of, of shit just sitting there. So uh, I have ready access to a bunch of bullshit. So if uh, people want to buy big ball bullshit – Give me a call or, or send me a Twitter message. I can provide you with some big ball bullshit. Yeah, Cheaper. but do you Cheap. want do you want to be the guy that goes out to gather up and packages all the bullshit though? Considering again, Cards Against Humanity made approximately one hundred eighty thousand dollars. Absolutely, I'll be the first one to go, and I will get that bullshit fresh from the market just for you. Money is a good motivator. If you stand to make that much, and I don't know how big their 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 company is, how many people they have on staff that are salaried, blah, blah, blah. Uh, as far as I know, it's an indie operation, so it's probably not too many people. So that, that's a good chunk of change to to have a nice holiday bonus over. One of my favorite uh, Twitter messages in regard to this says, if you buy the poop expecting it to be something else that's not poop, you're actually buying a valuable life lesson for $6. <laughs> yeah, and like people just getting all uppity, like, how dare they? They screwed me. Oh, my God. I've been trolled. Well, I mean, if, if that's what you say you're selling, I think it's disturbing. Like I said, some of these unboxing videos, to see people actually breaking apart this shit, looking for that that uh, diamond in the rough, so to speak. And it's like, no, we, we packaged what we told you we were going to send you. It's, it's just bullshit. That'd be pretty intricate to like take the rarest Cards Against Humanity card and just package it in shit. I think that would have been a better way to go. You know, even if you destroyed the card in the process, at least it's uh, a little bit more to talk about than the fact that people wasted $6 on shit. Well, it becomes like the Willy Wonka thing. It's like the golden ticket. Everyone would buy all of that. And and one poor bastard sitting there, you know, picking his turd apart to find the golden ticket. As I said, the, the scariest thing to me is that they're reselling on eBay. So it, it's one thing to be that initial customer that, that got fucked or, or misled or whatever, but to then take it and put it up on eBay and have somebody else bid on it, that's you know exactly at that point what you're getting. So that makes it even more fucked up. I wonder if it's still shrink-wrapped. Is it mint in the box or is it just plain shit in the box? Uh, you can't equate mint with bullshit. It just, no. No, that becomes a whole new level of disturbing mint-flavored bullshit. Well, it's the holidays. I guess it goes hand-in-hand. Hand. Peppermint. Speaking of a new level of disturbing, uh, we need to get this in. Tim Burton is in for directing Beetlejuice 2. What? Is this really? Is this for real? Because there's been a bunch of false starts. There, there have been tons of false starts. There's been a, a number of years with people talking about this, and I, I believe the original concept concept was uh, Beetlejuice goes to Hawaii, and we don't know if that's still or Beetlejuice goes Hawaiian. I don't know if that's still the concept, but Burton, I guess, within the last couple of days, has publicly said that he did speak with um, Michael Keaton about coming back because he, he certainly wouldn't do a Beetlejuice film without Keaton, and recently. He worked with Winona Ryder. It was for a uh, a video for the Killers. Um, I guess he directed it, and he spoke with her and, and gauged her interest in a Beetlejuice film. And she said absolutely. So 
You know, he, he's quoted all over the place as of today, and this is coming from MTV News, that uh, they asked if Ronaldo would be returning, and his quote is, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> he sounds pretty confident that this is going to happen. This is going to happen with Winona Ryder and uh, Michael Keaton. No word if any of the original cast members will return. But I think that's all you need in a Beetlejuice film is, is the dynamic between those two characters. And you can make something carry for a couple hours. Yeah, that that literally seems like one of those hell freezes over kind of scenarios. Because Keaton hasn't worked with, with Tim Burton since... Batman Returns, and that was like 92. And, you know, you see Michael Keaton's filmography kind of slowly wither away because, you know, he just decided that I mean, he's not getting the kind of parts that he that he wanted. He wanted to kind of avoid the sequel thing, and then now he's kind of open to it. Now, I don't know if that's because, you know, maybe it's like the, the, the well's drying up, and it's like, oh, I need to go back to... Go back to the teat that feeds me best. I, I don't know, because he's a very well-respected actor. You know, he got all these accolades for Birdman this year. Um, Did you see Birdman this year? Uh, no, I didn't. I want to. Neither did I. Um but, you know, in terms of Beetlejuice, everything old is new again in Hollywood. We have a new Ghostbusters relaunch coming out. So it, there's actually talk that there's two ongoing Ghostbuster projects right now. So that's kind of twisted. It was one thing to hear an announcement about one. All of a sudden, it's like, oh, there's two with, with potentially the same uh, cast being involved in both. Who knows if they're filming sequels back to back or whatever. But um I can see Hollywood. Oh yeah, you know, of course uh, it's Beetlejuice. It, it, it's it's like Transformers and, and My Little Pony. Of course, we can bring that to the big screen and bank on that. We probably make a half billion dollars. Um, but I think part of it too is I, I think there was this legitimate renewed interest in Michael Keaton after Birdman because of the accolades that film got. And, and I know I haven't seen it either, but I think it. it brought his name back into that pool of, yeah, you know, what's Michael Keaton up to? And and would he be game for something like this? And, you know, I'm, I'm actually not going to shit on this. It's, it's Beetlejuice. You already know what to expect going in. It's, it's fucking harmless. And you're not going to debate the merits of the film when you're done watching it. So yeah, yeah. sure. I'll buy that for a dollar. <laughs> Wrong film, but I'll take it. Yeah, it works. Uh, that's RoboCop. Which, which ironically is what he showed up in, the reboot of RoboCop. That's for Michael Keaton. That's what I most recently saw him in, and he was really good in it, actually. Um, and you're a theater guy. What do you think? I mean, you're going to be there opening day? Go check out Beetlejuice Part 2? Hell yeah. I'd be there. I saw Beetlejuice 1 in the theater. I was like one of maybe 10 people. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't as big a hit as, as Batman proved to be the next year. For Warner Brothers, but um, it certainly built its cult status in, in multiple cable viewings and everything. I mean, that I think that that's a generational divide that the kids today just won't understand is that, as you just said, films like Beetlejuice, I keep thinking about um, the first Terminator movie. I saw that so many times on, on cable after that aired theatrically that I, I, think I, I became a lot more familiarized, of course, with it uh, on cable. Same thing with um, Escape from New York. That was just, that was a cable mainstay. That was on every day, multiple viewings every day. So cable did a lot for the, the movie industry at the time, of course, with everything on demand and, and purchasing movie downloads and everything. It's not the same, but uh, yeah, cable did a lot for the uh, the movie business when we were growing up. 
Dude, yeah, early 80s, MTV used to play videos, and cable didn't even really have a remote, or uh, not the way that remotes work now anyway. I remember having to, oh yeah, these channels are on the A side, these channels are on the B side, so you physically had to get up and flip the switch on the cable box. Did you have one of those? I had a remote, and it was actually tethered. It was wild. It was like a a phone cable plugged into the back of the... uh, cable box and plugged into the remote itself so you had about maybe a 10 foot cord that the remote was on and it was always a trip yes pun intended somebody walked into the room hit the cord rip the cord out of your hand cord to go flying across the house smack into the tv that that was weird but i mean we didn't know any better at the time so it was nirvana it was like holy shit i'm sitting on the couch changing the channel quick somebody take a polaroid picture yeah i'm either gonna watch Beastmaster for the 8,000th time or try to queue over to the pay-per-view adult channels, which were scrambled, and you're trying to make out the details and the body parts? I think Beastmaster was my first on-screen exposure to boobies. I, I saw that theatrically uh, with my dad and my brother. Um, and yeah, that was like, holy crap, there's boobies on the screen. And um, that, that's what made Terminator great for, for a constant uh, reviewing on cable was uh, boobies, even though it didn't last very long. And <laughs> you couldn't rewind your, your playback on cable at the time. It's not like on demand now. So you had to have a sharp eye and, and, and get in that boobage as you can. That's right. And, of course, you know any main show like The Terminator, they, they'd probably air it a couple of times. There'd be like the primetime one, and then once again at 2 or 3 a.m. So it's like, oh, I just missed the booby scene. I'm going to wait and catch it later tonight, and everybody's going to be asleep, and it's not going to be awkward or anything. And Cinemax was just softcore central. And, and I think throughout the 80s and even into the early 90s, they were very fondly known as Skinemax. So <laughs> there's that when you're growing up with cable TV. Yeah, yeah. And if you have, again, conservative family members and they only walk into the room as you're watching something that's rated R. So it's either like a really graphic death or a really graphic sex scene. And then mom and dad are walk in. It's like, oh, hi. <laughs> Yeah, I, <laughs> I can't even. Yeah, well, I, I can't even either. Um, but I did many, many, many times. And all I would do is just get really, really embarrassed. And then my dad would just stare. And then <laughs> the scene would end. And then he'd go on about his business. That's awesome. Come for the boobs. Leave for the nachos. Right, right. Yeah, no scolding. No, hey, you shouldn't be watching this. None of that stuff. It's just like, hmm, boobies. I can see myself being the same way with my kids. I mean, I've got two boys, so, you know, boobs are natural, and if that's what you want to scope, fine. Hey, I'll scope for a minute, too, and go about my business. Are you going to throw them a curveball and just put in heavy metal? <laughs> it's like, because it's animated boobies. You know, I, and I think you'll agree with me here, it doesn't hold up. It just, there's so much better out there. <laughs> Even I think South Park's parody of heavy metal looks better than heavy metal looks today. Well, it's a product of its time, but uh, <laughs> it's super cheesy, but I think it's it's tongue firmly planted in cheek. I, I still love heavy metal, but yeah, it's very, very dated. I don't think I'll uh, be too keen on my kids watching hentai, but <laughs> I mean, I guess that's the modern equivalent. Oh, cool devices. Legend of the Overfiend. <laughs> <laughs> As Kyle rattles off 300 hentai titles. I don't know. Don't don't ask me. I'm not a you know, not a master on the subject here. I'm just. A, Have you done any hentai? No. no like dubbing, actually. No, 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 no. But um, 
Tom Wayland is a voice director up north in New York, and when he goes to conventions, he'll do a hentai uh, workshop, dubbing workshop. So people from the audience will come up and they'll they'll see the scene. And um, I did I did one scene with a couple other established voice actors. We did it behind the curtains because we didn't want to be identified. Um, so we had the monitor backstage, and so they'd show like this minute long like gangbang scene. So it's me and a couple of actresses and we all have to act it out and just make up dialogue for the entire 60 seconds. So I, I of course decided to tag it with next time on dragon ball Z, you know, cause how else would you tag it? Oh, tag it hard, long, deep. <laughs> it was hard to get through that scene. Pardon the pun, uh, without laughing, of course. I think, yeah, I, I can see that reality where, yeah, everybody could have those beer muscles. Yeah, I could do hentai, whatever. You know, how hard can that be? And I think the first hour in the booth is just going to be that that very elementary, you know, the giggle snort. Oh, boobies, huh? You know, and the director just pulling their hair at the point, you know. No, he's supposed to be fucking this chick and blah, blah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Acting, damn it. This is art. High art. Now, I know you don't necessarily method act but but i've heard many stories from from many different voice talent that you get in the character when you booth if your character's running you tend to kind of move your body like you're running and uh swinging the baseball bat swinging the tennis racket doing you know kamehamehas i i would just like to see a muted version of an actor in a booth doing hentai i I just would want to see what the actor's physical response is to delivering that dialogue so to speak that may be the most watched video on YouTube. Talk about viral. Yeah, right. And talk about viral. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> it goes together. Good God. That's crazy. And of course, yeah, yeah. Put us to work, guys. We want to we wanna have the best outtake reel. I mean, I work in studios sometimes where there are webcams. So I know that if they wanted to, they could get all of this horrible horrible blackmail audio and video of us, you know, picking our nose, farting, scratching our crotch, you know, dubbing something that out of context sounds like porn. <laughs> the list goes on, especially for the ladies. Maybe they do. <laughs> well, maybe they do. I don't know. It's like, all right, okay, we're going to release this unless you do this. Like, oh no. Extortion, extortion. That dark side of Hollywood, the Illuminati side. The Illuminati side that allows a Mama June sex tape. Oh, <laughs> nasty. Oi. Oi, indeed. God. Uh, have you acquired anything like geeky lately? What's a, I know you're busy and you've got two kids and all that, so you probably not have a lot of expendable cash, but do you have anything that you've run to the store and just had to have lately this, this holiday season? No, because... My must-haves really aren't anything that are on shelves. I, uh, I I got a document from the government a couple months ago uh, from the Army through the CDC, and to me, that was Christmas. Uh, going out to the mailbox and, and finding that in there, and I, I mean, I tear up the envelope with the it's same anticipation and glee that is the wrapping paper and I open it up and I read through the document and I, I feel like that six year old on, on Christmas day getting the gift that I asked for all year. So those things disturbingly enough, excite me a hell of a lot more than anything I can go to the store and buy. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. You know, we talked about a couple episodes back, um, 
my quest for things that are just completely extraneous and I'm an idiot for, for going after them. But I did finally get from eBay my Guardians of the Galaxy Best Buy Steelbook Edition at twice the cost. It showed up two days later. So good good on you, shipper. And, and in, other word, in other news, I got the Guardians of the Galaxy Awesome Mix Volume 1 on cassette, which was a record store day exclusive. Hear me? I'm juggling it right now. That's the cassette. And I, yeah, I want to I wanna dance around the house like Star-Lord. Now, I read that you went out, you purchased a, uh, a USB cassette player. And I actually think that's really cool. I didn't know those things even existed. <clears throat> Can you rip the audio from a cassette into an MP3 or WAV format on your computer? This is an Ion brand Tape Express Plus. It says tape to MP3 converter and player. Easy digital I, transfer. I have a lot of old school uh, band practices and, and even some performances that are on cassette that I have archived. And I'd, I'd love to be able to dump all this stuff and to know that that's an option. Yeah. I might have a cassette deck in the near future. Yeah. It's like, uh, I think you can go on Amazon. It's like 50, 60 bucks. That's where I got it at a local record store. But uh, I haven't even torn it open yet. Cause I was waiting on the guardians thing, but yeah, I come from a radio background. So I have tons of what are called air checks for people who aren't familiar with the lingo that's where the DJs would record their on-air breaks and just compile their shows that way. So I have endless hours, endless tapes uh, from my days as a DJ that I would love to have. Of course, the downside is because it's tape, there's no high-speed dubbing. It's all in real time. So it, it's a mammoth undertaking. You said mammoth. I did. Let's not bring them back, okay? I know they want to clone it. I know they want to just bring it back. But, you know, have we not learned from Jurassic Park? Maybe it's yummy. I mean, maybe that's a good enough reason to bring it back. Maybe they're just fucking delicious. Well, yeah. I mean, if they're all that well-preserved, you know, they say that, you know, anything you put in the freezer, you know, it'll last longer. I want to say... It was in the 20s, and I'm probably wrong, but let's go with this for the sake of the story. In the 1920s, there was uh, an exotic food club, and they held their annual meeting, their annual uh, tasting, and the person in charge at the time spent something like $400,000. Now, this is like 1920s money, and he obtained, I believe from the Soviet Union, a pretty well-preserved mastodon, and he had it cut, had the meat cut and prepared a la cooked and put on your plate and uh, everybody at this annual exotic foods gathering got to sample mastodon which i guess everybody said was pretty fucking gross <laughs> it tastes like chicken well i mean it's also you know whatever 200 300 400,000 years old um it's not like it's fresh from the market or anything fresh from the slaughterhouse so i would imagine that's that's pretty rancid yeah, maybe the Cards Against Humanity can chop it up and make some more money. I was thinking that's how we'll fund our, our Mastodon. I'll just send some of that, sell some of those that big ball bullshit, and then we'll buy a Mastodon. Yeah, maybe we should be digging for Mastodon turds. Speaking of turds, um, I, I liked Green Day when they first came out. <laughs> Nice transition, man. Long pause, dragged from the cigarette. Um, <laughs> they were, I mean, really, they, they were okay when they, they, they were, I guess, what you would call pop punk. I listened to a lot of punk. I still listen to a lot of punk, and I, I wouldn't call 
Green Day punk. It's a lot more uh, Disney punk than anything else. But they dug their first album, Dookie, and, and that's when I, why I was thinking, you know, bullshit, Dookie, haha. Um, but but then they went all ballad trippy and, and off Broadway, and um, I great great for them. I'm glad you made a bunch of money um, selling ballads. I just I'm not into the ballad stuff. But anyways, uh, they're a first year available inductee to the Hall of Fame, and, and I guess uh, they're going in in 2015. Um, joining Ringo Starr. Ringo's going in by himself this time. Ringo's been inducted as part of the Beatles, and this time he's going in for his solo contributions, along with Lou Reed, Stevie Ray Vaughan, Joan Jett, a few others, uh, Bill Weathers and the Paul Butterfield Band. So I just I wanted to mention that because uh, a lot of talent, a lot of very uh, creative individuals, uh, of course, Lou Reed, Stevie Ray Vaughan, um, a lot of respect. Uh, Joan Jett, though, I think that one is is what threw me the most because Joan Jett isn't a name you normally hear thrown around nowadays. But as I mentioned earlier about cable, repeating movies all the time. You know, when, when we grew up, like you said, Kyle, we grew up with MTV playing music videos. That's all they did twenty four seven was just play music videos. There weren't any other shows or, or formats. Right. And Joan Jett was an absolute staple, a mainstay in the early eighties. I love rock and roll, um, things like that. Uh, so yeah, I, I just, I wanted to, for, from me to her publicly acknowledge that that's pretty cool that Joan just going into the, uh, rock and roll hall of fame. And I, I think in her case in particular, it's very well deserved. Right. Yeah. I remember just, uh, wasn't it just a few months ago when the whole debacle about kiss and the original, was that the same thing? I don't know what you're talking about. Okay. I know you're not a kiss fan, so you probably didn't follow it, but, uh, there's always controversy anytime they announce the the new inductees because they're like that's not rock and roll and it's like wow we're putting Run DMC in there that's travesty blah blah blah. Um, there's there's always just everyone up in arms. I, I follow Eddie Trunk, who's a you know hard rock heavy metal DJ on air personality podcaster and all that. And I think he was talking about like what this travesty? What happened to Deep Purple? How come they can do this for this band for Green Day but not Deep Purple? I mean, that's true. And, and, and that's the side effect of having a Hall of Fame is if you look at the list of people who aren't in the Hall of Fame that should be, it probably is longer than the list of people that are actually inducted. Um, I don't know how politicized it is. I don't know if it's like the, uh, the Motion Picture Academy where you have members that get applications and, and they do the voting like that. Um, or if it's like the Walk of Fame where you actually have to uh, buy your star you know, did you know a star costs about thirty thousand dollars and has to be approved by the town council? It's pretty fucked up stuff. <laughs> I can't um, just give them thirty five grand and have my own star. I have to get approved too. Damn it. Mm-hmm. I guess there also has to be proof of demand, but yeah, it's pretty crazy. You got to buy your star. Um, but yeah, there, there there are so many. Deep Purple, of course, um, should be acknowledged in, in the Hall of Fame. With Run DMC, believe it or not, I, I kind of am going to come to their defense and say, although they're not rock. Their contribution to rock was pretty substantial. They they brought Aerosmith pr- uh, practically back from the dead, back to a, a powerhouse band. Um, yeah, I gotta give them some respect. I'm, I'm near the Boston area, so. But yeah, um, sure. I think I think the contribution was that noteworthy. Again, '80s MTV. That was big. That was unexpected. That was new. It, it's it's not like. Uh, Limp Bizkit coming out, you know, years later and, and trying to emulate the, the rap and rock thing. But at the time, it was big. And, and I applaud their contribution to rock and roll. 
I wonder how many of these bands, and not just the ones that get snubbed, actually kind of view it as, well, you know, rock and roll is about the spirit and the fans and all that, not this 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 corporate committee sort of thing that that sometimes it get it gets viewed as and suddenly it's like well what's an award what's what's an inductee thing what does it matter you know i'm a musician i'm established i'm successful at my craft i have a fan base you know that's all there is in life why would i want this i don't care and i i don't know how many people you know actually value when they get inducted versus you know how dare they not induct me don't don't i matter I look at it kind of morbidly. I almost, I look at it as the same as the Academy's Lifetime Achievement Award that once you receive this, this, uh, privilege, they don't expect you to do anything else. You know, it's like you're already in, you're in, you're in the Hall of Fame. And I, I, it's, it's almost like a, a death knell for their career. Like, okay, we don't really expect you to do anything achievable from this point going forward. <laughs> yeah. Here, here, here's a, here's a, here's an award for all you've done. Thanks. Move along. <laughs> to, to me, that's what it comes off as, you know, once you're in that Hall of Fame. Uh, a lot of athletes, and I know how much you love sports, Kyle, but a lot of athletes don't get inducted into the Hall of Fame until they've left their, their professional career. Um, so it's kind of weird to be active in your professional career. I'm sure Green Day has a, a lot more albums and tours on the horizon. Um, but it's almost like, you know, okay, yeah, you're in the Hall, so yeah, shut up. We, we really don't care what you do from this point forward. <sighs> Yeah, it's kind of like in the in the movie world, you hear people just uh, like Jack Nicholson. He just doesn't even he don't want to act anymore because they say that he's got the onset of of Alzheimer's and he can't uh, can't memorize lines. And it's like uh, then other people like uh, De Niro. It's like people once revered as one of the all time greats, and then you know he he puts out these these movies that aren't as uh, I guess noteworthy as possible. I mean, they're a nice payday. But uh, when you make Rocky and Bullwinkle versus Taxi Driver, you know, something like that. But it, then you have Bill Murray, who's not getting any younger. And I understand his morals and his ethics, but rather than cash in on something that's going to really uh, be bank like Ghostbusters, you end up doing these, these uh, more underground, these uh, no-budget, low-budget um, appearances. So that's kind of weird, too. Dude, I heard that he signed on for Garfield because he saw Cohen Brothers, and it's not the Cohen Brothers; it's like someone I else. That same thing. Yeah. <laughs> but he was already committed to it, and it's like, well, it's an easy gig; it's just VO. You know, all right. And then you make two of those, and suddenly, you know, your house payment's done for the next thirty years. I dug him in Zombieland. Uh, yeah, I, I, totally. I went in cold. The zombie land didn't see it coming, and it was it was absolutely hilarious when it happened, and uh, that was pretty cool. But I, I, the, I don't know the uh, the capitalist in me would be like, yeah, fuck yeah, I'll do Ghostbusters because you know I'm the only holdout. I'm the Robert Downey Jr. in that universe, so yeah, I'll do it for twenty million dollars. And the studio may not bat an eye just to have him involved in it. Yeah, yeah, and it, it was it was a good move. Although a move that 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 kind of seems like they're flipping the bird our way is I think it was uh, Entertainment Weekly recently had the cover and it was the cast of Ghostbusters, even Bill Murray, all together. It's like, oh, man, because that, yeah, that, 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 that just stirs the pot. It's the closest you're probably going to come. But, you know, let's be honest, there was probably a decent paycheck in that, too. Well, yeah, yeah. It's like. 
How do they even get Bill on the phone? He doesn't even have a phone. You can't reach him. I think you have to email him and maybe, maybe he'll reply if he's interested, something like that. Cause he, he's, he's Bill Murray. He could do what he wants. And apparently he does. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, all right, I'll do, I'll do a photo cover shoot and then I'll disappear. But you know what? I could also see him like being that baiter too. He's probably laughing his ass off during that shoot. Like, oh, fuck yeah. You know, think about what people are going to say on the internet about this. And that's probably even more incentive to want to have that picture out there. <laughs> yes. Yes. Conspiracy. Conspiracy. Well, I guess we're at the ass end of another episode of the Big Bald Broadcast. We talked a bunch of shit and your guys are still listening. This is a good thing. We really appreciate your listenership and uh, stay tuned to the end credits so you can uh, learn how you can get in touch with us because we love having feedback from our listeners and the like. Uh, Special thanks again to Kyle Vogt, Data Integrity and Archive Specialist. If you missed it, of course, go to our Smodcast page and download this and all of our other previous episodes so you can get caught up. We really appreciate uh, all the love and... um, guess that's going to wrap it up for now. Till next time, this is Kyle Hebert. And this is Otherworld Steve. See ya! Special thanks to Will Wilkins and Jason Peer. Music heard in this podcast provided by Perimeter of the Void. Follow the Big Ball Broadcast on Twitter at BB Broadcast and email thebigballbroadcast at gmail.com. This has been a production of Smodco Internet Radio. Sir, only at smodcast.com.